Blackbird episode number 75. My name is James, and today I am pleased to bring to you a conversation I had with someone who I had never heard of before and who I just sort of fortuitously found online, a guy named Miles Wakeham. Miles is an entrepreneur. He was a former tech executive. He's made and lost millions of dollars, and I thought that we could glean some information from him about getting rich, losing it all, getting rich again, and retiring very, very early in life. Additionally, he is a bit of a renegade. He is, as it turns out, libertarian. He's actually friends with Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, which I found out, I don't remember if the recording picked that up or if that was something that we talked about after I hit stop, but uh, it was a fun little tidbit that he threw in there (laughs) at the very end of our conversation. So that's kind of cool. We didn't really talk too much about politics on this one. You know, as always, I'm sure COVID comes up and Just in full disclosure, it's been several weeks since I've listened to this conversation. As always, you can get these conversations very early, sometimes up to a month in advance. If you go to blackbirdpodcast.com, shoot me seven bucks a month or $70 a year, and I will shoot you these conversations as soon as I hit stop on the recording. You'll also get the pre-show banter that we engage in as we kind of get to know each other. Like I said, I had never heard of Miles before. So we had a bit of a conversation before, you know, the actual meat of this conversation started. So if that interests you, once again, go to blackbirdpodcast.com and sign up for the premium feed. All that having been said, here is my conversation with Miles Wakeham. Miles, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, um, however you see fit? Uh, you kind of have a you kind of have a varied story, so I'd love to hear how you how you introduce yourself to people. All right. Well, I'm I guess what people call a contrarian. So, what I do is almost the polar opposite of what everybody else does, and that kind of puts me in a in a weird and unusual camp. And I I tend to find myself doing strange things that people would be unpredictable about. So if you can't tell, I'm from Australia originally, but I moved to the United States in 1989, and I'm now a a dual citizen, but I'm also a resident of Mexico, so kind of all over the place. I guess my claim to fame is that I haven't had a job for 25 years. I'm a multimillionaire and... I did it all off my own back, uh, made millions, lost millions. I've gone through that roller coaster story for a while and came out the other side and I'm still here, which is a miracle. So that's kind of the summation, I guess. What's it like, what's it like knowing that you're going to lose millions? It's, that's a funny, that's a good question. The first time I lost millions... Uh, was devastating because it came with the cost of a divorce, uh, a major car accident that I was almost killed in, and uh, a government that failed me in Australia. And I think all of that together combined made me go from hero to zero very quickly. And 
I think at that point we're looking back, it was it's like your it's like your first experience. It's like if your your first relationship that you ever break up with is devastating, mm-hmm. and then you look back, you know, 20, 30 years later and go, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> and that's a little bit of how it feels. Um uh, so the, the the story goes, I'll, I'll give you a quick one. So when I first came to the United States, I I didn't, okay, firstly, I never graduated high school. I went straight into being a software developer when I was 15 years old in, in 1978. Wow. So this is when the first computers were invented and there wasn't, you couldn't study software development. There, no one taught that. I mean, you bought a computer, you took it home, you worked out how it worked and that was it. And and I found myself in a place where there was this massive amount of demand for people who could do what I could do and so I could make good money doing it. And so as a kid, I just went straight out and said, I'll seize the opportunity and I, and I did that. So by the age of 25, I had written software for all these mega organizations all through Australia, including I, I ran a $5 billion submarine contract for billing contracts out to the Navy on a Macintosh. Um, I mean, wow. it was pretty frontier, you know, Wild West, but we got the job done. So then I found myself in the United States and I got married here and all of a sudden I was like, uh, well, I got a work permit, I better go get a job. Uh, so I was in Los Angeles, bumbling around, going from interview to interview. And, you know, this was, what, 89. So I'd wander into, I remember I had like an interview at, I think it was McDonnell Douglas, somewhere like that. I walked into the office, sat down. They said, okay, well, what uh, what degree have you got? I'm like, I don't have a degree. I didn't even finish high school. Get out. Wow. <laughs> it was like every time, get out, 20 times over. And it was just driving me nuts because I said, you know, I know I can do this work, you know. I'm one of the guys who invented the damn computer you expect me to program on. So come on, give me a break, you know, but no, that didn't work. So whatever. So anyway, one day I ended up in this um, (laughs) startup that was in this area in in a place called Newberry Park, which was in um, the north side of LA County, uh, in Ventura County, but on the north side. And the interview was at this startup that had something to do with medical. I didn't know, but uh, go to this address. So I go to this address, I've got a suit on, tie on, you know, whole bit, wander in. It's a trailer. It's like a, a, a mobile trailer office. I'm like, oh, it's got come down to this, has it? So <laughs> I, I go in. There's all these people working furiously and I go down the back, there's kind of an office in there and I, I sit down with the people and they're, they're looking at me from one side of the table and I'm thinking in my mind, they're just going to say no, right, because everyone else did. And, and they're thinking, actually, he's going to say no because we're in this office trailer, right? <laughs> it's a match made in heaven. It was. It was like... I said, yeah, I'll work for you. And they said, sure, here's a job. So they gave me this job and they gave me all these things they called stock options, which I didn't really know what that was, but I took them, you know. And that place turned out to be Amgen. And a month or so later, uh, they got their first FDA approval for 
their first drug and everybody became millionaires like oh, wow. instantly. And I just walked into it right at the right time. <laughs> there we go, instant millionaire. What were you doing for them? Software development. I ran their IT. I was basically their software development manager, one of their first ones. And so they're they're a pharmaceutical company though, right? Biotech. They're the Biotech. guys. Okay. Yeah, they they claimed the fame back then. They invented a, a thing called epigen, which we probably know more as as epo, because it was the steroid that Lance Armstrong and all the guys <laughs> on the Tour de France used. Um, but it wasn't for that indication; it was for something else. But yeah, that's probably the claim to fame. That, but yeah, we invented that. So there so you go. Back in the eighties, I mean, biotech was still just cutting edge, what kind of software were you developing for, for them? Uh, I wrote in a language called Fourth Dimension, which was okay. a database product for the Mac. Uh, but I was actually, my, my actual background is in assembly in C. But back in those days, you, you, you had to get the job done quick and you had to do it in higher level languages. So we just went for that. That makes sense. Do you keep up with the new languages as they're developed? I've always wondered if like old school coders do that. Like do you like do you um, know yeah. JavaScript and Python and SQL oh, yeah. and all that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. yeah. It doesn't. You know what's funny is I I guess I've been doing that sort of work for forty odd years, and it kind of loses its shine after a while. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like when back in the early days when technology was coming out, you could you almost saw every twelve months, twenty four months, this like quantum leap forward. You know, when I started playing around on like an old TRS-80, it wasn't two years later before the IBM PC came out. And then when we mastered that, it was like three years later that the Mac came out. And then I mastered that, local area networking was going, and then eventually bulletin board services and and all these technologies, the GUI, you know, the the user interface. And it wasn't, I guess, in the... It's funny because when I was with Amgen, we had this... uh, crappy little conference room in the eventual office building that I was working in. And uh, I remember these guys from some college somewhere in on the East Coast had come in and were pitching this idea of this crazy thing that could be used for research that would allow papers to be put on, on this computer and it had this thing called hyperlinking and you could click on it. And, and back in those days, there used to be a Mac product called HyperCard, and we all thought it was something like that. And they're like, "No, no, it's this thing." And they were from they called it Mosaic back in those days. And I didn't realize that those two guys were that was Mark Andreessen and uh, Jamie Zawinski from who eventually became Netscape and then Mozilla, oh, and yeah. you know. And then eventually, Mark Andreessen turned out to be one of the richest men in the Silicon Valley. He runs one of the largest venture capital firms there now. And he was just this scruffy guy in my conference room with me and like two or three other of my guys watching him demo this. And, and we didn't get it. That was stupid. It was, it took, if I got it, imagine. <laughs> no, no, I missed the boat on that one. But anyway, what are you going to do? So I'm still kind of stuck on losing millions of dollars. For me, I think the biggest hang-up I have for 
wanting to continue to work in a salaried position rather than completely break off onto my own as an entrepreneur is that fear that, you know, if I get rich, I can, I can lose it way faster and easier than I made it. What do you say to somebody with that sort of mental block? I'm guessing I'm not the only one. There's another angle to it, which people often don't consider. And that is, imagine that you did have all that money. Would you still work? Would you still do what you're doing today if you had $10 million and you never had to work another day in your life? The question then changes. And that is, I think, the riskier part of it is actually what happens if you make it. But we, there was a, I don't know if it was a book, I think it was written about Steve Jobs many years ago. It was called The Journey is the Reward. And it's true. You don't want to ever finish the journey because then what, right? Like while you're striving for something, you get excited, you get exhilarated, you get passionate about what you're doing and you work and you do it and you'll, you'll do 16 hours a day or you'll, you know, do three days no sleep or whatever because get it done, right? You've got to deliver the, the thing, ship the product, whatever it might be. When all of the, the um, stress and the governor that's upon you goes away because you achieve it, all of that goes with it. And then you have the choice. You sit, you get up in the morning and go, well, am I going to sit there and code or, nah, screw it, I'll play Xbox. Mm-hmm. Or I'll go, you know, out for lunch with my friends or I'll go for a hike or whatever it might be. And we find every excuse to not do what we're working. And then when you find yourself in that place, you look back at what you were doing and going, was that really what I wanted to do? <laughs> or was that what I was doing Because society told me I should have, the government told me I should have, the banks told me I should have. And that's really hard to face because here's the the crazy story. Um, Most people don't get to face that challenge until the age of 65 when they retire. Yeah. And that's scary because going from that transition where all you've done for 40 odd years and you're working life is you've followed that path, right? You've been a loyal company man or or woman or whatever it is, but you've followed that path. And then all of a sudden you're out. Now what? And and what happens is I think there was a study done that's that ranked uh, the, the transition to retirement is one of the highest stress events in most people's lives with the highest, I think, being like death of a spouse. But it was somewhere like number four. Like my father died two years after he retired. And I've spoken to people in in large organizations that manage like pension funds where they have to budget how much money to keep around for their uh, retired staff. And the numbers that the longevity that people have when they work to that age, it's not pretty. Um, I mean, even the CDC will tell you the the current US male life expectancy is 75.3 years. It's not very long. And when they're trying to push a 67-year retirement age, that doesn't give you much time to spend it. And so I'm having done that and having gone through the whole kind of ordeal that I've done, when I came out the other side and, and realized I've got to go back and make money again after I lost it and 
you know, in the, the whole calamities of, of the post-Amgen era for me, I started realizing that I better have a mission. Like I better have a reason to do what I'm doing because I know what it feels like when you don't do it anymore, right? It's, it's pretty nasty. I retired when I was 32 and I lost it all by the time I was 34, probably most of it by the time I was 33. So it wasn't that, you know, it's funny, we we have this kind of stupid attitude to things like we, we look at people who are succeeding and you either prop them up and say, good on you, good job, boy, that sort of thing, or you look at it and go, ah, oh, they're criminals or they're cheating or they're, you know, right? And then when they lose it, you've got this other half of society looking going, uh-huh. You know, it's like a Simpsons episode. And I, I look at the whole thing going, well, you're a spectator to the whole thing. <laughs> you watched him win it. You watched him lose it. How about you get off your butt and go and try it yourself? Mm-hmm. If we all did that, we might have a, a, a better country without all the problems <laughs> we're facing today. So, yeah, I think we've got a, we've got a bit of reprogramming to do, to use a technical term. <laughs> You retired at 32, I'm assuming, from Amgen? Yeah. I'm, what happened was my mother in Australia had a car accident and I had to go back to Australia to look after her. And then when that happened, I realized that I had to stay in Australia and keep looking after her. I literally had to quit my job at that point and tell my wife in California I have to move back to Australia. And she said, fine, I'm, I'm coming, you know. So she came. And it was only about three weeks later that she realized that um, there wasn't a future in it for her. And that's when she left and the divorce happened. And and then shortly after that, I was in a major car accident in the outback uh, of Australia. And that's where I almost was killed. The girl in the car was killed and was pretty nasty. But after that happened, and then they flew, they airlifted me back to uh, my city, my home city. Um, the government sort of patched me up and then we were supposed to have like socialised healthcare, like public healthcare. Yeah, that didn't work. After about six weeks, they pulled the plug. Yeah. Wow. It's the worst kind of healthcare you can ever imagine, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. you can. It's, it's like army triage and people don't realise that. When, when people say, oh, we need a public option or we need Obamacare or we need to have public health care. I'm like, you you understand what rationing looks like, right? You remember seeing all those pictures of people lined up in the the USSR trying to get like a pair of shoes and they were there for eight hours waiting to get a pair of shoes? Welcome to medical. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's like. And, you know, I was in a hospital with eight beds in the room, eight other guys. And they turfed me out because there was another victim ready to take the bed over. This is not medical care. This is bureaucratic, get this guy out, get the next one in, check the box, you know. Yeah. It's horrible. When you have a government with infinite money funding a program with, you know, infinite need, you completely forget that there's scarcity in everything, including medical care. Like there, there has to be market mechanisms to, to drive it. So once you got through all of this, how did you recover financially? Did you go get another job or did you find other ways to 
make yourself successful? Uh, I just floated around my home city where I grew up doing contract work. I was doing uh, like DevOps kind of work for a while. And, but the problem was because I, I'd lost the use of my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I couldn't do network cabling or work in data, you know, data centers and things. Uh, so that was out. So I returned back to programming again. I wrote some software. I made enough money to get by. But I think, you know, to be honest with you, I was losing about 20000 bucks a year every year that I was doing it. I tried to build a little company and hire some guys to fix people's computers and that was just a joke. That didn't work. And we're not we're not talking about a highly technologically sav- not savvy is not the right word, but embracing market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people still licked stamps and put things in the mail. I mean it was it was that sort of a world. So it didn't really, I didn't really fit in very well, but I just kept trying and I kept trying. My wife and I had a daughter uh, about two years after we met. Uh, I remarried down there. And then, uh, and my goal went from, okay, I've got to be a father. I've got to be a, a supporter to the family and I need to do, I take a conservative, you know, road. What do I do? And then I was just bumbling. I was just not getting anywhere. And uh, I got a phone call from one of the guys that I worked with at Amgen. And he says, would you like a consulting gig in LA? And I'm like, yeah, put me on a plane, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on the plane. Get me there. So I did. And I worked there and it was great. And I didn't realize I'd sort of walked into the dot-com boom. So at that point, it was like there was more work than anybody could imagine. So I started writing web servers um, and I built some of those and then I got a lot of contract work. And so for about two years, I was doing really well. And I called my wife up back in Australia and I said, guess what? Come over here now. So she said, sure. Now she's a little more adventurous. She grew up with a, a father who used to build schools in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. So she used to, used to um, take, an, you know, being in, pretty intrepid. So coming to um, California wasn't a stretch for her. She did it. And we came there and we said, Initially, well, we'll come back for a year. We'll get the money. We'll see whether we, you know, we want to stay. And after a year, we said, sure, this is better than where we were. Um, and, of course, you know, I knew because I'd lived in California for six years before. So I knew the place, but she didn't. So I had to let her work it out. Um, and then what happened, it was kind of weird, most of the money that I made in the first year or so that I came back went into funding an existence because we had nothing. We came with suitcase and clothes and I had to buy a car. I had to buy a, get a lease on a house. I had to, you know, and I had no credit history that was active for the past like four or five years. So nobody would trust me with anything. It was like, Oh, this again. All right, fine. I have to prove it all over again. So I said, all right, I know the game. So I went ahead and did that. And, uh, driving around California in this crappy old Geo Metro car that was going to fall apart at any moment. But I didn't have any debt. No one would give me anything. So I did everything on the, off my own back. And then the weird thing was after we got our house and we furnished it and all of that, because I didn't have any debt, every dollar I made was mine, which was mm-hmm. great, other than the tax man wanting his pound of flesh. But, 
you know, at the end, I got I got to keep it. So, so what ended up happening was that we started amassing a lot of money in savings. We still had our house back in Australia because we didn't know if we were going to go back. You know, we we so yeah. we put some tenants in that, and then we all of a sudden realized, oh, we're landlords. Didn't know what that meant. <laughs> we read like rich dad, poor dad. I mean, that was our experience in real estate. And all of a sudden we got this money. And then the weird thing happened, right? Australia's dollar dropped to 48 cents to the US dollar. And so every dollar we made in the US was worth two in Australia. So we went back with a lot of cash and we started, I remember back in the hometown we grew up, there was this sort of country town on the other side of the of a like a mountain, I guess you'd call it, that people loved to go to, loved to live in. It was in kind of in nature, but it was it was good. But you to get from there to the city was like, you know, an hour winding around this stupid road. And then all of a sudden the government said, we're going to build a tunnel right through that mountain to that town. And we're like, that's huge. Because that means those people can get to work in 10 minutes. So what did we do? We went out and we bought three properties because they were cheap, you know, they were like 70 grand or something. And we had all this US money. So really it was 35 grand because I was buying everything at, at half price. So we just bought all these properties and we stuck some tenants in there because after all, we were already renting there anyway. And then we came back to California and back to work and just let it, you know, go. And then I ended up moving, we moved to Arizona because it was cheaper here and the work started to dry up. This was after the dot-com bust that happened about 2001. You couldn't find work if you tried it. So I just said, you know, I'm going to go out and write my own software and sell it. And I did that. And it was, that was enjoyable and fun. And I actually probably remember that to be more pro- prolific in terms of the work I did. I uh, found myself all over the world, you know, showing it. I was in the UK at the NEC showing it. I was South Africa, I think. I mean, it was all over the place just showing the software, which was really fun. Um, and that went for a few years. And what kind of software was that? Service management. It was like uh, for technicians in the field. Sure. This is before. It wasn't really internet-based. It was still PC-based. Uh, eventually, it moved to being internet um, in 2007. I started buying up servers and data center space in Phoenix and eventually built larger and larger, um, you know, data center clusters and cages and the whole bit. Uh, and then moved all of that software into uh, PHP and as an inter- uh, web app. And uh, that was quite successful for a while. I started doing managed services for governments and healthcare companies and things like that. Um, That was good. And with the money that was coming from that, we started to buy rental properties in Phoenix, which at the time was a really growing place. It actually kind of is like that right now. But I know a lot of people who've moved there uh, next to like Florida and Texas. It seems like more people people are moving to to Phoenix than anywhere else. Yeah. So we bought a ton of rental properties here, um, and then that was great. And all of a sudden, everything went up and at, at scale because we had all the growth in Australia 
and all the growth in the US. Australia was going through a resource boom. It was digging anything it could out of the backyard, selling it to China and making a ton of money. And it kept doing that for decades. And so our property kept going up. So the next thing you know, I guess about 2004, I'm a millionaire again. It's like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, this time I felt like I deserved it because it wasn't given to me. I had to I had to take, I had to work and take the risks and make my own observation and punt. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I thought that was okay. So we were, we were enjoying ourselves until 2008 happened. And then all the property market went collapse. But the, the weird thing is the property market in Australia didn't. It kept going because China kept buying. And so it was protected. So I was sitting on these all these underwater properties in the US. So what did I do? I sold the properties I had in Australia, cleared out the debt in the US, and I still had a ton of cash. Mm-hmm. Everybody else in Phoenix was losing their homes and getting foreclosed. So I just would go to the county auctions and I just wander in there and they'd go, who wants this one? I'd go, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. <laughs> oh, I'm, wow. I'm buying them at 10 cents on the dollar. And I'm buying like multifamily properties because I know people need a roof over their head. And by about 2014, oh no, by about 2012, we had righted the upside down position and returned ourselves back where we started. By about 2014, 2015, we were five, six, maybe even seven times richer than we were before the crash. And then today, I've got properties I paid like 75K for that I just got them valued because uh, we're doing a, a acquisition. I've just bought a, a big estate in Mexico. So I'm going to be doing a bunch of property development there. But uh, one of those 75K properties are valuing it over 750 right now here. So 10 times what, they were, what we bought them for. So, yeah, I mean, look, it could have gone any other way, right? I mean, it did. It's not like I could say, oh, I got lucky. I didn't get lucky in 2008. In 2008, I was destroyed again. But I remember having been through what I'd been through in the 90s, it was like, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. (laughs) And so that was interesting because all of a sudden I could see the evil of the banks you know, what they were doing. They they were getting money from government, from us. Mm-hmm. Our, our, you know, our nest egg was given to them to bail them out and they wouldn't bail anybody out. They just hoarded it and then did M&A and bought out their competitors and they wouldn't loan anything to anybody. In some ways, I guess because of that, I picked up a lot of property because I had cash. But for the average Joe in the U.S., they got let down. And, and I started looking at the whole thing and I'm like, this ain't right. This is not right. People need to have, it's the old, what, the old Spider-Man thing, right? With great power comes great responsibility. It was like there was no responsibility here. Um, and at the end of the day, I kind of realized, you know, Ron Paul's right. Austrian economics is right. It would have cleaned this mess up if we let these guys 
strung out to dry. I mean, just torch the whole thing and start again. We would have been fine. And that was where I became very much a liberty guy. It wasn't because I was choosing some ideology that I read in a book. I'm on the ground here, yeah. right? I'm seeing this with my own eyes. And I, <laughs> this, is a, this is a funny story, but it's true. So um, when I was uh, a kid before I left Australia to come to the US, um, the software company I'd built there, we put an ad in the yellow pages, as what you did back in those days, and we'd get phone calls from uh, people of all over the place, government departments, big corporations, whatever. And I got a phone call from this little council in the middle of the Flinders Ranges, which is out way in the outback in Australia. I mean, country town, like we're talking like, you know, um, oh, what's that TV show? I can't remember. Uh, anyway, it's it's a little town, population 200 people, oh, wow. really little. It's got a pub, it's got a general store, and it's got a council building which took over the old church. And the rest of it, farmland, right? Really small. I get a call from these guys. They needed to, um, they didn't have electricity in the town, if you can believe that. And the, the mayor of the town's a bit of a savvy guy and he managed to work out a deal to run an electricity line up from one of the nearest towns, which was a, about a three-hour drive away. Uh, into the town and they built their own transformer and they were releasing power out to everybody. And the one thing they didn't have is a software system to manage electricity consumption and build the, the 200 people, right? Now, if you think about it, where would you buy something like that? <laughs> I don't know, but they needed it written. So they called us up and I wrote that software and I, I drove out into the middle of nowhere, into this little town somewhere in the backwaters. And I and they were the most wonderful people you'd ever meet. I mean, these are these are country people, right? These are good, stand, upstanding people. And um, the reason why I bring it up is so I was in this church council building, <laughs> helping them implement this software I'd written, and all of a sudden. In comes one of the guys, one of the farmers. There's a fire. And, and he's right. There's a big ass fire. Well, up in there, the mayor is also the fire chief. <laughs> so oh he's like, right, round up all the guys. We're going out. We're going to fight the fire. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back going, I'm freaking out, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, shit, we're all going to die. And he's, he's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean don't worry about it? You've seen what Australian bushfires look like. You've probably seen it on the TV. But, you know, the, the flames go up half a mile. I mean, they consume anything inside. And he goes, no, no, we, we, we've got a, you know, we can, we can reroute the fire away from the town. It'll be fine. He goes, but, but here's the thing you need to know about fires. I've never, never, ever forgotten this. He says, you need fires. I'm like, what do you mean? You need bushfires. Mm -hmm. I said, why? He says, because it's the only thing that kills the dead wood. And if it, nothing kills the dead wood, no new growth can emerge. And I thought, ah. So every single time that we manipulate 
the laws of the universe and the laws of nature. And we don't let things like zombie corporations die a natural death or banks to go and bleed out yeah. like they yeah. should have because they created the damn mess. When we don't do that, we're stopping the fire from killing the deadwood. And a forest cannot exist on deadwood. It simply cannot. It will eventually die off on its own. And welcome to the United States. That's exactly what we've got with a Federal Reserve and a government that wants to print money rather and, and no accountability for the basic laws of the free market and the basic laws of, of profit and loss, deficits and reduction and, and a willingness to tell your people, the guts to tell your people, it's okay that you won't get a new Tesla next year, right? It's okay that you're going to have to fix the car you've got rather than worry about buying another one because we need to fix this problem or you're not going to have any roads to drive the damn thing on. But nobody's got the guts to say that. And that's the problem. Everybody has got, they're in it only for themselves. It's like the ship's sinking and everybody is out there trying to grab onto the mask and to hell with anybody else. And that's kind of how I see what's going on right now. So, you know, that, a long answer to your question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It's a good story. And the Deadwood analogy is, it's a really good one, especially, I mean, I don't know, you must remember prior to COVID, all the news was talking about was the Australian wildfires. And I think also yeah. California wildfires was always a big thing. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, not only does it not allow the forest to grow, but you're also piling up deadwood. Like the next fire is going to be so much bigger because of all the damn tinder that you're letting pile up. Yeah. So, I mean, what what is the individual to do? I mean, if you were like a 25, 30-year-old, just bright, shiny, and new and getting out in the world, what would you be doing right now if you wanted to succeed? My, my perspective comes from an outsider looking in uh, to the United States. Although I've lived here for 30 years, mm -hmm. but I still feel like I'm an outsider looking in. And sometimes there's that, uh, if you go into a new company, if you're an employee or a consultant or something, sometimes the first time you see something, there's a certain wisdom and naivety that comes from that. And I, I think that somebody from the outside looking in can see things that often, what do they call that? Forest and trees, right? Yeah, you can, can see, see the forest, the forest the when everybody inside is just looking at the, at the tree, they can't see the thing. And um, when you're looking at it from the outside, uh, you come in with a passport and you say, well, I'm a resident of that country, but I'm coming here as a visitor and soon I'm going to switch that around. But you always still have this willingness to roam and this willingness to travel and be nomadic. And I think that never left myself. It certainly never left my wife. Um, so we decided, and, and, and this would be what I would do if I was you know, back in that, in my 25 years self, get a passport, be willing to travel, 
be willing to realize that the economics that are here are not the same as the economics in other reasons in other regions. And that can be a good thing. That's what saved my bacon in 2008, is that the economics in one country were very different in cycle to the economics here. And I could play the game of, well, buy low, sell high. Who's, who's high, I'll sell there. Who's low, I'll buy there and be willing to travel. And that's what I do. I'm kind of somebody, I'm kind of like a, a student of the school of Doug Casey, if you know who he is. That's exactly who I was going to compare you to. I was, I was like, this sounds a lot like Doug Casey, and there's nobody more contrarian than Doug Casey. So, so I'm glad you're carrying on the brand. Yeah. No, Doug Casey, I, 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 one day I would love to meet the man because I could have a great conversation with him. But yeah. The thing is that, I mean, he's living in Uruguay right now, looking from the outside, looking in, seeing this potential calamity going on in the economy. And I'm, I just bought a bullfighting ring in Mexico, <laughs> turning it into a, a <laughs> compound with a big luxury house to go and move in. I mean, we all need a plan B, but I, I think that's more of a wealth preservation thing. If I was looking for accumulation of wealth, the truth is this is the best country in the world to make money. Mm -hmm. It's got the greatest consumption base and the greatest transactional economy that you could ever have. It's not the best place in the world to keep that money because it can be taken from you at any moment. Yeah. And that's kind of why I travel around. I mean, I, I six months of the year, because we live in Phoenix, it's bloody horrible here in the summer. You would No one would want to be here. So we leave and we go to more temperate regions. And we've been doing that now for, I don't know, half a dozen years. And it's just become normal for me to be nomadic half the year and, and back here in the good times. And that's good. Um, and I, I don't anticipate that will change much. I mean, COVID was a bit of a pain because we couldn't leave, but whatever, like all things, it'll pass. So I don't get better in a shape by it, but, you know, I just suck it up and move on. I've been through worse. What do you think of what's going on in Australia right now? I mean, I, I know it's sort of regionally centered, the the protests and the kind of police overreach and all that stuff. But does it does it make you, does it make you sad for your home country or did you expect it? Did it come as a surprise? It makes me disgusted, yeah. to be absolutely honest. Uh, so there's a history behind that. Um, when Australia started selling all this crap out to China in about 2000, it sold its soul when it sold its iron ore. Oh. And the problem is that um, Australia has this kind of weird governance situation. It's a basically a Wellington-style school of government, so very much like the UK. I mean, it's part of the British Commonwealth. But it is independent, and when it implemented its version of Wellington-style government in Australia, it did this thing called states' rights. Now, in the US, we have states' rights. I mean, that's fair. But there was a reasoning behind that because of the way, you know, the revolution occurred and the way that the country was founded. States' rights made a lot of sense. In Australia, it was never founded under war. It was a penal colony. 
And right. one day they said, let them all out and they can go out and land. <laughs> and so they, off they did. And they went out and, you know, hit the coastlines and learned to surf and, you know, grew grew vegetables or whatever. Um, and that was how Australia was founded. But then what it did was it, it gave the rights to the state that was so much stronger than than any federal government in Australia. And so it's federal I guess capital city, Canberra, is nowhere near as powerful as, say, Washington, D.C. is. It doesn't really get as much say in the matter uh, because the states can overrule it. And so what happened was after 20, uh, 2000, when they were selling all this crap out to China, China realised this and they went to the states individually and they said, Belt and Road Initiative, here you go, here's some money, sign on to the communist regime and half the states did all the universities would only take foreign exchange students because they paid the money and this became this kind of it's almost like a heroin addiction and china was the dealer and um, then what happened is in 2018 pre-covid the uh, australian federal government said we don't like you china you're a bunch of you know you're killing the uyghurs and you're attacking hong kong and you're doing all this stuff and we don't, we're not on board with that. Um, and China said, don't you dare ever, you know, talk to us like that. Um, you better retract all that stuff. And by the way, here's 14 other conditions you've got to uh, abide to. And we, and the Australian Prime Minister, look, he's a bit of a character, but he looks at it and he goes, you're freaking kidding me. Get this thing out. And so he says, no, no. And so China said, all right, fine, no exports. We're not buying anything from you anymore. We'll buy some iron ore, that's it. So all these ships with wheat and barley and lobsters and wine were just floating out there in the South China Sea. They wouldn't take them into port and the farmers were suffering big time. So Australia did it really tough with that. Problem is that um, China, who had been vanquished out of Australia, still had this foothold in the states. And certain states enacted uh, certain, we'll call it technologies from China, like facial recognition, recognition surveillance. Um, they built firewalls around the internet. They basically did everything the Chinese did in like the state of Victoria or the state of New South Wales which was disgusting. And then when COVID happened, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia went to China and goes, right, fess up to this. That's basically what he said. And the Chinese are like, ah, screw you. And then so <laughs> what they did behind the scenes, so they went to the States and they said, right, it's time to enact the totalitarianism. And so... The states came out and they said, right, lock everybody down. No one can leave their homes for more than an hour a day, close the borders. And, 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 and they overreact to this thing because there were less people getting infected by this than they were getting the flu. I mean, it was ridiculously low and yet the states just overreacted. And when they did that, all of a sudden, they were able to turn on all that technology they'd bought from China and they were able to engage that police force they'd trained and yeah. try out all those new SWAT tanks and, and everything. 
So God forbid you're a protester going, I ain't taking your vax. It's like, really? Well, try this out and bam, off they go. And that was, you know, it was disgusting. And the world could see this. And the federal government, the national government, couldn't do squat to stop right. them because the states had state rights. So the irony is on the 31st of October, or a week or so ago, they allowed people to escape finally to get out of Australia, to fly internationally out of Australia. But the problem is they didn't tell the states that. So what the states said is that, oh, sure, you can fly out. If you want to come back and you reside in the state of Victoria, 14 days quarantine in the you know internment camp for you, buddy. So, of course, no one's ever too scared to leave. Mm-hmm. And the, this is... My country? Are you freaking kidding me? Australians are nice people. They're, they're, they'll give you the shirt off their back. They're the most honourable, predictable, loyal people. They'll be, you know, we've, we've fought in every single war for the last hundred and something years alongside the US, alongside Britain. I mean, you know, we're there. We're, you know, we're, we're proud to stand firm on what's right. And this shit's going on? I wasn't raised like that, and none of my buddies were raised like that. We don't do that, and yet we're expected to sit there and put up with it. I'm so happy I left. I can't imagine. So I'm from Texas, which it's a little bit different, but if I were to see Texas, my home my home state, which is, you know, I mean, Texans think of Texas as a separate country, really. If I saw something like that happening there, and here I am in Minnesota, reasonably unmolested by my government. I can't imagine. And seeing my family go through it and seeing all my friends go through it and half of them being okay with it, it would just, it would absolutely shatter me. So I hope that you're doing okay. I mean, you know, obviously you're doing okay being that you're in Arizona, but just also emotionally seeing what's happening and and the place that, you know, you, you identify with. There's that. My, my wife still has fam- my family have passed, so I don't have any ties to go back. But my wife still has a mother in, a, in um, South Australia, and she hasn't been able to go see her for two years nearly, and, um, which is really weird because we've gone in and out of Mexico half a dozen times in the last year without any issues. And yet we can't go back and see a family, um, and that's hard. Uh, but at the same time, they're doing okay. You know, they're, they're all right. And, and you are right. There is a very large percentage of Australians who still believe in their government. The problem is their government has never been tested before. You were believing in a, a beta-tested government that never went in produ- into production. Right, you had no idea whether this government could actually stand up to a pandemic. You would think they could, but structurally, it is so broken that it. I'll tell you a story in in Northern Territory, which is like the state north of the state I'm from. There's a city there called Darwin, and Darwin has a big port, a seaport, and a lot of products that come in from Asia come into Darwin. Not all of them, but a lot of them. It's quite deep water off the coast there, so it's good for shipping. So um, 
the mayor of Darwin did a deal with the Chinese and sold the port uh, for 99 years to the Chinese and then left public office and somehow had $50 million waiting for him in the Cayman Islands. Well, <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, this is, this is like, you know, right out of Putin's playbook, right? This is When was this? Uh, 2015, 2016, okay. like that. So pre-COVID, but, but, but recent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so then when, when China and, and the federal government were, became enemies somewhat, uh, economic en- enemies, the federal government was looking over this lease contract and going, we think we need to nullify that because it goes against the national security interests of the country. Makes sense. They didn't have the right to nullify it because states' rights overrode them legally. They didn't have the ability to do it. So corruption can run rife at the state level and everybody knows it's going on and yet everybody still looks at this like, eh, just ignore it, you know, whatever. You know, the next guy won't screw up. Yeah, of course the next guy will screw up and he'll screw up on steroids because there's a precedent. He'll just do that again and again and again. And and the funny thing is, there's 2,500 U.S. Marines stationed in Darwin. <laughs> so you think that uh, they weren't too happy about this at all, um, but that still wasn't enough to break the state's power. So, yeah, it's one of those be careful what you wish for things. <laughs> yeah, it makes me gives me a little bit of pause as someone who is sort of a decentralist. Mm-hmm. Switching gears back to you know money and practicality and things like that are there any technologies that are emergent right now that you see as sort of like the the cutting edge of what someone may may want to learn right now in order to be successful in 10 20 years i'm one of those people who believes that the the internet the let's call it the web the worldwide web because obviously the internet's a network it's a layered network um you know, you don't play Call of Duty in a web browser, right? right? It's, it's, it uses the protocol of TCP, but it's not, it doesn't run in a web browser. And yet we think of the internet like it's one big Google page. Right. Like one, you know. So I, I'm one of those people who believes that the web, the worldwide web, the browser, and, you know, I, it's not that because I had that meeting with Andreessen and back in the day, but... It's just that I look at a web browser and I, I look at what I used to have to write in software that talked directly to the chips and the machine and so on. And I sort of think the browser's just a big damn gets in the way thing and, and JavaScript's just a big hack. It's a script kitty language. It's, a, it's not a real thing, right? Mm. But it, it's become a real thing. People have had to adapt it and to make it what it never was meant to be. In the same way they've made a web browser something it never was meant to be. It was supposed to be a read-only kind of click hyperlinking research tool. It wasn't meant to be Amazon or Facebook. But we've made it that. We've found ways to co-opt it, to change it. I personally believe that as a platform, it is so fundamentally flawed that it is not the answer to what we've got. And one day somebody will come along and work out a different, a, a better 
interface in which we can all communicate on that network without the browser, without the phone. I don't know what it will be, minority report. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be something like that. And when that happens, you will get this quantum shift in technology going forward. And we haven't had a quantum shift in technology since the probably the first iPhone. The smartphone was the last quantum shift that we've had. Now, there's been a lot of back-end stuff, you know, AI, uh, facial rec, um, the supercomputer stuff, right, the hardcore stuff. There's a lot of that going on, and that's moving along quite well. But when it comes to things that reach out and touch us as human beings, we haven't had a quantum shift in a long time. Now, we are also in a very insecure place because we've co-opted this web browser and hacked it into what we want the internet to be, but we never actually did it securely because the fundamental nature of a, a protocol like HTTP that is just text, right? Well, it's clear text. And unless you encrypt everything, it's out there for all to see. You just tap the network and you can see everything, you know? When you've got a world that's built on that, it's like a Jenga game. <laughs> At some point, someone's going to pull out the wrong thing and the whole thing's going to crash. And, and I tend to think that we have built ourselves a, a horrible uh, structure, which is securely flawed and subject to complete takeover at any moment. And we will least expect it when it happens, but it will happen. I mean, we're seeing instances of this bit by bit. There's a time when we have to sort of own up and say, okay, we need to go back to what it was like, say, in the 80s and the 90s, where every two years we reinvented the whole thing. You know, we the, the, the graphical user interface changed what was, say, the Lisa in 1983 compared to a TTY terminal. You know, that was quantum. We haven't had a quantum shift not until the phone came along. And because we're trying to co-opt the web browser to pretend away the fact that we haven't had a quantum shift and we're far overdue for it, is meaning we're leaving ourselves securely exposed to everything, particularly foreign state actors who have far more power to go in there and, and attack. And, you know, if you ever go out to DEF CON or you're involved in the, in the security community, you'll know that, you never know, what is the word, the difference between an attacker and a defender is that the attacker knows when they didn't succeed. The defender has no idea, right? And that's important because we're being attacked. Yeah. <laughs> we, the, the onus is on us and we'll never. And so here's the interesting spin-off of this, if you think about it. What do governments do when they find themselves in a precarious position like that? They go to the one tool that they always have that they can do. Well, it's two, but really it's one. Regulate, right? They regulate things. They legislate things. They license things. So anything that comes along, like if you're a network professional or a software developer, get ready because you may have to go and get a license like a lawyer does. Mm -hmm like an architect or an engineer, you'd have to get certified because if you're not certified, 
then they can't guarantee that you're following the security protocol, which, let's face it, they're not following, right? They've got the worst IT I've ever seen. So, but this is how they operate. You're going to see Congress legislating lockdown in security technology that's going to impede any form of technological progress. Yeah, um, That's one prediction. Another prediction I've got is to do with, ele- with energy. And this is a, a big one. In the 1800s, the British invented the Industrial Revolution on the basis of steam power. And as a result, the British returned them back to an empire level because of the power of steam. And in the 1900s, the United States usurped that position with the invention of the combustion engine. So they were able to take sequestered energy, that is fossil fuel, and fuel an an engine and turn it into cars, planes, air air travel, uh, trucking, sea, and so on, and eventually in space, all because of fossil fuels. And right now, as we record this, they're in that last week of the climate thing going on in Europe right now. And everybody's out there trying to tell everybody off for burning fossil fuel. And meanwhile, they're living under lights and they all got there by private jet. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and the Ubers that drove them were not electric cars. And they're living in this fantasy that a, um, an eco-friendly world is going to save us. If you want to be an empire, it comes down to energy. And if you, it, it, I'll give you a good example. Bitcoin. What's the biggest impediment to Bitcoin in, in, in itself? What, what's the highest cost factor that a Bitcoin mining operation has? Yeah, the energy. It's the energy. It's power. And then if you think that you want to be able to do big things, like change world currency or smart contracts on Ethereum or whatever it might be, you better have a shitload of energy. And you ain't going to get it from solar panels Mm -hmm. because those miners need to keep mining when the sun goes down. And batteries, you talk about the most poisonous, polluting things you could ever make, lead lead batteries or or lithium-ion batteries or whatever the the tech is, that's not going to solve it. The reality for all of us here is that unless we find a new form of energy that can allow us to make a quantum move forward, we have stalled. And when we're stalling because we're all going to do everything on green energy and eco-friendly, then guess what? Somebody else out there ain't going to do that and they're going to eat our lunch. And that's probably going to be the next empirical power for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And more likely, it's going to be China. So what I look at is for all of us as technologists, at whatever stage in our career we might be, that we need to realize that we are part of making the United States the 21st century empirical power. And it comes down to whether or not we are going to sit there and look not look beyond our nose about what we need because I know, I mean, I I did very well out of Bitcoin. I was buying it in 2011. And so I'm pretty damn happy with what worked out there for me. But I was mining it too. And I know just how much power it cost. 
And I realized that if I wanted to do all the right things for the purpose of, say, Austrian economics and, and all that, that really good decentralized, you know, give people their own bank, um, put power in their pocket of their ability to transact peer-to-peer, you know, the old white paper, electronic, the, bit, uh, the electronic peer-to-peer cash system. If you're really true to that, which I think is really important, you have to realize that we can't get there without massive amounts of power. And if the problem is you can't get massive amount of power out of eco-sources, which is probably the case, and you won't burn fossil fuel, what's the alternative? Nuclear. Nuclear, yeah. Right. That will be the reason whoever embraces nuclear successfully in the 21st century shall be the empirical power. Do you think empire is inevitable? Like, will there be a material power? I think that once you get to that place, it's really hard to turn that tap off. Like yeah. once, you, once you've got the fundamental cost factors and the expectation of empire, you can't undo it. You can't, get, you can't undo pregnancy. <laughs> I mean, you're an empire. You're either going to yeah. collapse or you're going to sustain. And the reality is right now, we're doing everything in our power right now to collapse, not sustain it. And so I, I, I feel very, very cautious about that. And that's why I have plan Bs and Cs. All right. I have one last practical question for you. What do you think is more important, building a nest egg or getting out of debt, if you had to choose one? Oh, get out of debt. Okay. You, you don't want to be um, shackled to anything, right? You, you don't. I do, I do a thing I teach on, on our website and to our community called financial sustainability. And the idea is that you don't need to have millions and millions of dollars in the bank. What you need to have is enough money coming in every month that covers your burn rate. And, and that money coming in should come in without a great deal of labor required to get it. So in, in my world, that's rents from real estate. But for a lot of other people, it could be dividends from stocks or it could be vending machines or it could be, um, I don't know, merchant commissions or whatever. But something that you know there's enough of it coming in to cover your burn rate. And so the, the methodology I teach is to get yourself frugal so your burn rate's as low as possible, not forever, it's just going to be for a while, and then take the money you're making and deploy it into assets that will generate you, will, will pay you to own them. And for me, real estate's been the natural one. And so then when you're at the point where they're generating enough of a dividend that covers your burn rate, you're free. You're financially free. You never have to work another day in your life. And if you happen to have chosen assets that the, their own value just goes up organically anyway, like property, well, then you get the double whammy. So that works really well. So you can forget, forget your 401ks and you can forget your IRAs and you forget the whole social mantra of retiring at 65 because once you hit that burn rate number, you're retired. And at that point, it's not that, like I said, you don't want to be like I did and at 32 retired and lose everything. But what you want to do is you want to be in a place where you respect everything you did to get to that and then you can build 
upward from it to whatever your passion chooses to be. If you want to be a mu musician, do that. If you want to be a screenwriter, do that. If you want to be a sculptor, do that. If you want to work for a charity, do that. If you want to invent new technologies, do that. But it's a hell of a lot easier to do that when you don't have, you know, Bank of America calling you up because you're a day late on the mortgage payment. So, yeah, debt, cut it out. You've got to get rid of that. And once that's gone, then you want to build on your financial sustainability position and then you'll never need debt, right? Debt is only making bankers rich. If you take that mentality of the idea that you, you buy assets, deploy them, and then they pay you to own them, what do you think a bank does? They, they take their assets, cash, they loan it to you, you pay them interest so they don't have to go and work. Yeah. So you yeah. think all of the, the executives at the bank are working? No way. They're in the Monaco Harbour and the yachts. They're in Switzerland. They're, they're not working. They might think, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to be active on my portfolio. Right. Like, no, you don't. you got more money than God. You don't need to work. <laughs> and how did you get it? Well, you deployed the assets you had to get a dividend called interest, and you're living off the interest. We're making you rich, buddy. So if someone wanted to get into like rental properties or vending machines or whatever, would would you recommend that they not take out a mortgage or a small business loan for that? No, I think that the, the problem we've got in terms of asset valuation means that you have no choice yeah. other than to take a mortgage. The thing is, though, there's different types of debt. There's debt that yields a dividend, debt that okay. yields a profit, right? That makes, like that makes absolute sense. Right. Like when a business starts up, they have to capitalize. If it's a factory, they have to buy equipment to make their whatever they make. Uh, if it's a retail store, they've got to stock the inventory. And you need to do that with your business, which would be to buy a piece of real estate. Once you've deployed it and you've got it operating, it is pretty much, it'll operate itself if you do it right. And then you just take that yield, you pay that debt off, you let your tenants do that as fast as possible. I'm a big advocate of nothing more than 15-year mortgages. Interest rates are ridiculously low right now. When I was doing this, when I started, they were 12%. So if I oh, can wow. do it at 12%, anybody can do it at 3 Um and so, so you find a and if somebody says, oh, real estate's so expensive right now. It's like, give me a break. You know what it's going to look like in 20, 30, 40 years' time? But who cares if it's expensive as long as you're cash flowing it? Because at the end of the day, the tenants are paying expensive rent. So when they're paying the expensive rent and you're paying off the expensive property, property in 15 years' time, guess what, buddy? You own the property. It's yours. Now your expensive property, which is worth a lot more, is giving you even more expensive rent. And that rent is, is pegged to inflation. When inflation goes up, you put the rent up, right? It's a natural free. This is the last bastion of free market economics we've got at any meaningful level. It's not a manipulated market like the stock market. It's not manipulated like commodities and gold futures and all that. It's not like you're a farmer where you can only charge for your cattle whatever Wall Street tells you the future price is for, for beef. It's not a manipulated market. Real estate is whatever you've got and what someone's willing to pay for it. They call that comps, right? And the more the banks... They look at it and go, yeah, that's all right. Just get us an appraisal and we'll give you X 
LTV of the comps. It's natural free market organic economics. And thank God there's one industry left that embraces that. And so you would even say that right now in the middle of what appears to be a real estate bubble, it's still a, a smart move to get into rental properties? If you're in it for the long term, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, look, you know, things go up and then they drop and they go up again, right? Look, if you want to try and time the market, you can do that. If you talk to any stock guy, they'll tell you it's a stupid idea, just, you know, dollar just cost average or whatever. Yeah. Right. But let, let me tell you that the, the, the counter position of that is that you, and this is one, one thing I try to teach my people, is that you want to think like a surfer. You can't catch a wave when it's on you and you can't catch a wave after it passes you. You can only catch a wave if you're in front of it, paddling like damn crazy and prepared, and then you pick the right wave, right? Yeah. That's how it works. Everything here, I mean, look, I'm just a simple guy from Australia who didn't finish high school, right? But everything I'm telling you is what the universe taught me. It's not what I read in a book. I, I understood surfing because I learned how to surf. Mm-hmm. I understood hunting based on, you know, buying property where a road was going to go because I went there, saw it with my, with my own eyes. I'm a big believer right now that we have a, a huge problem in the United States in regards to retirement. No one can afford to retire. So what's happening is that everyone's going down to Mexico and they're living like kings down there on their social security because they can. Well, if you know that's happening and also believe that we're going to decouple from China for supply chain and we're going to need to move it somewhere. And down on our southern border, we've got 130 million people who are willing to do the jobs we don't want to do for six bucks a day. I mean, you tell me that that's not going to be where supply chain goes. And so I've tried to get ahead of the curve and I'm investing like crazy down there. And that's why, again, it's the surfer. I see the wave, I get in front of it. I'm not going to do it when it's on me. I mean, that's how you get dumped. (laughs) How do you... And I swear this is the last question because we're running out of time. But how do you find the wave? How do you how do you recognize it? You go to it. Oh, no surfer okay. ever caught a wave sitting on the beach being afraid to get wet. Yeah. You have to go to it. That means that you you put your smartphone down and you get a bloody airline ticket and you go to it. You talk to people, local knowledge. You find out what's going on in the area. And that's when the real opportunities will present themselves. And if you're prepared for that, you've got the money ready or available within a reasonable time frame, and you get those opportunities because you're sitting around having mescal at some event with a bunch of people and somebody says, oh, by the way, so-and-so is selling their property, and you're like, aha. <laughs> and you immediately like, knocks. bingo. And then you make, a, you make a deal and you get the thing done. And that's how it works. It doesn't work on Zillow. It doesn't work with an agent. And you know what they say about real estate brokers? You know why they're called broker? Because they're broker than you. So the bottom line is you've got to go out there and do it yourself. All right. Awesome. Miles, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been this has been one of my favorite interviews so far. So that's good. And it's episode number 72. So there's been a few of them. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell people where they can find your course? It's less than $200, which I was surprised by. 
So you might want to jump on it right now if you're into real estate investment or want to be. What's the URL just so that people can find it? Theunconstrained.com. That's everything that I do. And it's not just the course. Where I do a podcast every yeah. week. Uh, I do articles, uh, all of that. We have a, a matrix server. I'm a big believer in sensor-resistant uh, discussions. So we host our own oh, great. Uh, forums and everything. And, um, and that's all free. I mean, everyone can go there, join it up, have a good old time with it, get involved in it. Uh, we have a really great community of people who think kind of like me, kind of oddballs. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and if, you, if you're serious about getting into rental real estate, I did a 15 plus hour uh, audio course, which you're welcome to, to uh, partake of there as well. Okay, awesome. Beunconstrained.com and you're unconstrained just about everywhere else as well. So I'll make sure to link to that. And I really appreciate your time, Miles, and I will hopefully talk to you soon. You got it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird. And until next time, live free. (laughs) 